So our scripture reading for this morning comes from Revelation chapter 14. You can find that on page 1246 of your church Bibles. Um, And you can also follow along on the screen behind me. All right, Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 1, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like the harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are, these are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among, the, from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed him and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which he has poured full in full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest or day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say this, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Some pretty confronting images, aren't there? Uh, It's confronting considering the hour of God's judgment, 
It's a topic I think most of us would rather not think about uh, too much at all. Uh, in fact, a report from two years ago uh, it suggested that Australians who would be open to exploring things of Christ, exploring Christianity, uh, for them, the idea of a God who judges is the second biggest blocker for them exploring further. Now, I find that really interesting because at the same time, justice is a very popular topic. Uh, everyone, rightly, wants to live in a world where there is justice. Uh, even small children, I think maybe especially small children, uh, they understand what justice is and it's sort of inbuilt in them to, they want to see justice. Uh, my two-year-old son will very clearly cry for justice if you take his cupcake from him. And, like, don't we all? Uh, we love justice. We hate it when people are oppressed or ripped off. Uh, especially if it's us or someone we love. We don't want to see the bad guy get away with it. So I reckon it is a strange environment for us to live in. On the one hand, we love justice. Justice is great, but judgment, not so comfortable with that. Uh, I don't think you can actually have one without the other. The whole idea of judgment is that it brings justice with it. And so if we all want justice, I think that means what we ultimately want is a good judge. So I'm not so sure that the problem of, is with judgment itself. I suspect the problem with the topic of judgment is that it seems that we don't get to be the judge. It seems someone else is passing judgment on us, and that's never a nice thought. After all, what would they know? And what if they judge us by a standard we're not happy with? What if the judge has a different view of justice to me? I think this is the problem with justice. We want it. But the thought that an all-knowing and perfect God, that he might judge us differently to how we would judge ourselves, it's not a pleasant thought. And so even if Revelation 14 and the, the imagery we see here, even if it makes us really uncomfortable, I hope what we see today is that God's justice is actually good. Uh, Revelation 14 starts by focusing on a group of people who are safe from God's judgment, uh, the 144,000 who are standing with the Lamb. Now, I think, uh, people disagree with this, I think, though, that this is a description of Christians, normal Christians, all Christians. Uh, it's just that in the way that Revelation does things, like the rest of Revelation, it's just a really creative way of saying that these people are Christians. Uh, now, Revelation is a vision. John, he's one of Jesus' friends, he kind of has access uh, for, in his vision to see things from God's point of view. And John's describing here what he sees, but he does it in a very symbolic way. So we have a lamb, uh, that's Jesus in, in Revelation, and the 144,000 people with the Lamb, they have his name and his father's name written on their heads. Now, I think the idea with that is that they belong to Jesus. Uh, what we saw last week, if you were here, is that everyone who doesn't belong to Jesus, uh, by definition, are worshipping the beast. And so they have the stamp of the beast's ownership on them, the mark of the beast. So we have really only two groups in Revelation, those who belong to Jesus and those who don't. There's not much middle ground at all. Now, why do I think this group represents Christians, all Christians? Uh, firstly, I'm pretty sure that John didn't stand there in his vision and count every single one of them. You don't get that impression at all. Instead, when we see numbers in Revelation, the way they seem to work is they represent something. 
uh, it seems to me more likely that John is saying he sees the fullness, the completeness of God's people. Something like the 12 tribes of Israel, God's Old Testament people, and you know, multiplied with the New Testament people, the 12 apostles, times by a really big number, a thousands, it's God's people. I think that's kind of the image here. Uh, but the main reason I think this group represents all Christians is how they're described at the end of verse 3. If you have Revelation 14 open, please look with me. At the end of verse 3, the 144,000 are those who have been redeemed from the earth. You see the same idea repeated near the end of verse 4. They were purchased from among mankind's. So redeemed, purchased, uh, that's the language used to describe a price being paid to release or to free a slave. And that's the story of the Bible, actually. The whole story of the Bible is about God redeeming and purchasing a people for himself. He pays the price for redemption. I'll say more about this in a moment, but the price paid is Jesus' blood. That is what makes this group of people safe on the day of God's judgment. Jesus' blood. Before we talk about judgment, we need to see this. We need to see what saves people on that day. Christians are not safe in the hour of God's judgment because of how good we are or how hard we've tried. It's not by being better than anyone else. By our own merit, we don't deserve a pass mark in God's courtroom. Christians are people who God redeems. Being safe from judgment is all about what God has done and not what we do. That's what we're celebrating this morning with a baptism. That's what we saw with Ezra. Uh, He's certainly very cute and, uh, I'm sure, a wonderful child in every way, uh, but he hasn't earned his way to salvation. He's far too young, and like the rest of us, he's unable to do that. His acceptance before God is all to do with what God has done for him. It's God's grace that we celebrate in baptism. I think this is the most important point to understand in this chapter, and I'll come back to it later. Because I really should actually probably explain a bit about uh, this group of people who are all virgins, never having told lies. What's going on there? Um, Again, I think this is symbolic. I say that because, well, look, everyone's lied, haven't they? Every single person who's ever lived, except Jesus, has lied. Uh, There is no way you could find a group this big who has not told a lie. Uh, More importantly, though, I think in this part of Revelation, what we're thinking about, what kind of the big idea being unpacked is, who do you worship? Who do you worship? Uh, For Roman Christians, uh, they're living in the Roman Empire, there was a lot of pressure on them to lie about who they worship. They would either lie about being Christian, or perhaps lie that uh, they think the emperor is God, to save their lives. There was pressure on them to lie, and so here as they read this, they're encouraged, don't give up on Jesus, keep declaring that he is the Lord, because he is. And I reckon it's the same idea with them being virgins. It's, again, likely symbolic. Again, throughout the Bible, we see that sex in marriage is, is a great gift from God. The Bible is very clear that it's not sort of holier or something like that to stay unmarried. Sex is a good thing. So I think what this description about is not literal. It's about faithfulness. It's about fidelity, not being loose with who we worship. The image we have here is actually one of all of God's people awaiting their, or perhaps our, wedding day. See, all of history is actually heading towards a wedding. 
We'll see this later in Revelation. We'll see that Jesus is the groom and his people, the church, are the bride. And so as we go to weddings, uh, as we do, all those weddings are really a sign pointing us forward to this wonderful day uh, when the church and the lamb get married. There's a good thing to think about your next wedding. A lamb marrying billions of people. <laughs> Fantastic. But the point is, it's an intimate union. Now, that might be a new idea, and it's worth uh, thinking about a bit, even if it's strange, because I think this helps us grasp the biggest idea in this chapter about God's love. Uh, what we see all throughout the Bible is that God has an intense love, an intense love, a desire, a longing for his people. He's like the groom who sort of chokes up when he sees his bride walking down the aisle. He's not just fond of us, he loves us. Uh, last week, Ed Shaw is a, is a UK-based pastor who is in Adelaide. Uh, he was here to help us think carefully and biblically about sexuality. Uh, Ed pointed out something really helpful, I think. Uh, Ed pointed out that a large part of the reason God has made us as sexual creatures with intense attractions for others that sort of built into us it's not the only reason, but one reason we have been made with such strong, intense longing for others is to give us a sense of how much and how intensely God loves his people. Now, of course, the way that God loves and the way he's attracted is quite different to our own experience. But the point is, our experiences of strong attraction, strong desire to be with someone completely, I think that gives us the smallest hint of how much and how intensely God loves us. And so then we have the smallest sense of how much it hurts God when his people cheat on him or are unfaithful. Infidelity, unfaithfulness, bring dreadful pain. It's personal, it's deep. And so I think knowing the intensity of God's love for his creatures, it helps us understand what we see as we get to God's judgment. The other thing that we need to sort of bear in mind as we think about judgment is what we see in verse 7. Uh, so the announcement of the first angel. He shouts out the eternal gospel, the good news. That is, judgment doesn't just happen without warning from God. Like God could have just surprised us, right? He didn't need to tell us he's going to judge us. He could have just rocked up one day, hey, guess what? Judgment day. He doesn't. The gospel and the warnings that come with the gospel is announced to every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. So there is the chance for people to hear the good news and be saved from the day of judgment. The point here in verse 6 and 7 seems to be everyone can be saved from judgment. Anyone can be saved. Christianity truly is the most inclusive religion imaginable. No one's left out because everyone is warned. We are all told that God doesn't want anyone to perish. And so he warns us. Uh, the command here from the angel to fear God, it's not so much about sort of being afraid of him, uh, although there's an element of that. More, it seems to be the, about recognizing just how immense and powerful he is. I think a lot of Australians have this image of God as an old fuddy-duddy guy sitting on the clouds, long beards, kind of just watching on. God can make galaxies. 
He can make an ocean. Next time you're at the beach or flying over the ocean, like, God made that. Have a look how big it is. He's huge. And he's also good. He's stitched beauty and wonder into every part of the universe. Which tells us, doesn't it, that God actually deserves every moment of admiration. He deserves every inch of ourselves, every moment of our lives, enjoying him, uh, bringing him glory, centering our lives around him. He deserves it. And so the call of the angel is to worship God, to do that, because he's God. Because he made us to love, he made us to love us, and for us to love him and to enjoy him. Here's the great problem, though. No one does. No one worships God like he deserves. No one adores him or lives our lives centered around him like we should. It seems most of us are far too busy enjoying the good things in the world to stop and even thank him for making them and giving them. We are like the unfaithful partner. We spurn or ignore Perhaps even worse, we sometimes mock uh, the God who made us, who loves us intensely. As we do that, the consequence is we fail to love everyone else who he made and also loves intensely. There is terrible injustice there, isn't there? What I've just described is sin. Uh, We sometimes, I think, uh, describe or think of sin as the bad things we do, uh, and there is truth in that. Uh, But what I'm saying here is that sin, as the Bible paints it, is far, far worse. It's the worst injustice in the universe. To hold back from God what he rightly deserves, our wholehearted worship, our fidelity. This, I think, takes us back again to that topic of justice and what makes it so tricky. If it's true that God made all things, then it's true that only God is qualified to bring justice which means that we don't get to set the standard we're judged by. If we did that, if we get to set the standard by which we're judged, we'd probably all get a pass mark, wouldn't we? But as it is, none of us even come close to passing God's standards of judgment. By our merit, we have no hope in the hour of God's judgment. Now we might ask, well, can't a loving God just forgive us? Why does he need to judge us if he's a God of love? Uh, That's a common question, and it's a good question. But do you see the problem with loving someone intensely? It's that you can't turn a blind eye. If someone we love is unjustly hurt or cheated, we can't turn a blind eye. We're not indifferent to their suffering. It's because we love them we want to see justice. You can't let it go when someone you love is badly wrong. That in itself is unjust. So how how could Jesus turn a blind eye to any injustice in this world, horrible things committed against those who he loves intensely, ferociously? That would not be a just universe, would it? It may be hard to see this at first, and it is an uncomfortable topic to deal with. But the picture here in verses 6 and 7 is that it is actually good news that God will bring justice. But there is even better news. 
As we read the rest of this chapter and see what this hour of judgment is like, uh, we'll need to hold in front of our minds what the, the, that the 144,000, the church, are simply those who have heard this warning and trusted in the blood of the Lamb to be saved from this, from this judgment. The good news is uh, that because God loves his people so intensely, as much as justice as important, God didn't want his judgment to be the final word. Even though none of us deserve to be spared from judgment, God's love is so great, he made a way to remain just, but to spare us at enormous cost to himself. Enormous cost. I think that's what we see as we read verses 8 to 20. Firstly, we can't fail to miss it's a warning that God's judgment is severe. It's intentionally confronting. It's supposed to make us stop and and reflect. Because the day of judgment is dreadful if we don't go to Jesus for safety. But as we read these verses, I, I think it also gives us a far clearer picture of the cost of redemption. The price Jesus paid to bring us to safety. Verse 9 tells us uh, who is not safe on that sudden day of judgment. Uh, Again, it's those who have the mark of the beast. Uh, We talked about this briefly last week. I think it's simply those who don't worship God or the Lamb. That's people who worship anyone or anything other than Jesus. An emperor, perhaps. It might be money. It might be ourselves. It could be anything. The point is, if we're not worshipping Jesus, we don't belong to him. And the description of what happens on that day, it's dreadful, isn't it? It's dreadful. They will drink of the wine of God's fury. It's at full strength. The idea is, at the moment, right now, in history, God is being patient. He's allowing time, uh, he's allowing time for people to turn to him, but he won't be patient forever. Whatever drinking this cup represents, as we keep reading, we, we see it involves torment or punishment. It's ongoing. There's images of smoke and sulfur. There's no rest, day or night. And as you get to the end of the chapter, there's that vivid and violent image, that bloody trampling of the grapes. Now, even if these descriptions are not literal, whatever it is they represent, it's terrible. So I think, rightly, our first first thought is compassion. How can this be so bad? I think what we're getting a glimpse of here in these verses is, from God's perspective, just how bad sin is. If this is what justice looks like for those who stand against God, then standing against God truly is the most dreadful, terrible thing in the universe. Perhaps the worst part of it all, verse 10, uh, the suffering takes place in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. So here, there's someone who has rejected God's goodness, uh, his kindness, all their lives, they're not interested in Jesus, they've rejected his grace, and now their judgment includes the presence of a holy and perfect and gracious and kind Jesus. He's standing there, he was ignored, he died, they might have life, but now uh, he's present in their judgment. I think this is why the topic of hell is so confrontational. It's because of what it says about us. 
It says that my sin is far more offensive. It's far more unjust than I would ever realize by myself. Now, if you're new here this morning or you're checking out who Jesus is, uh, if you wouldn't say you're someone who follows Jesus, again, it's, it's fantastic you're here. We love having new people checking us out. And again, I want to stress, this is confronting for all of us. Uh, we don't talk about hell here every week. But I hope this morning you see why it's important that we do talk about hell. If this is true, we need to talk about hell so that we are warned. We need to know. And we need to know that there is still time. It seems that that day will come suddenly when it is too late, but for now, there is still time to find out about Jesus, to ask the questions you need to, to find out what it means to be safe on that day. The last thing I want to do this morning as, as I uh, take us through this passage is to put, us off, uh, put you off uh, finding out more about Jesus. We really desperately want you to be safe on that day. As I said earlier, there is a sure way to be safe. It's not about being a good person. It's not just hoping that God will turn a blind eye. The sure way to be safe is to follow the Lamb. On a cross, a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth did the most glorious, the most wonderful thing in history. The night before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed that if there was any other way to redeem God's people, if there was any other price he could pay... He asked that he would not have to drink the cup, the cup of God's wrath. But Jesus knew there was no other way. He knew that was the price. And so Jesus took the cup of God's wrath, mixed at full strength. Instead of making us drink it, Jesus himself drank that cup, every last drop. And he did that because he loves us intensely. Revelation 14 tells us a lot about the cross. We get a sense of what Jesus went through as he drank from the cup so that we don't have to. Uh, we'll often say things uh, rightly that Jesus, like, Jesus died for my sins. That's an important truth. But have you ever wondered, does it matter how Jesus died? Like, would it have still paid for my sins if Jesus had died of old age? Or, you know, in a fishing accident, his friends were pretty useless fishermen, it turns out. Would that have paid for my sins if Jesus had died for me in that way? Now, the, the cross seems to be important to showing us that Jesus died as a criminal. He died, it shows us he died as the guilty one, so that's important. But again, why the cross? Why not something swift like being beheaded? It's execution like the guilty one, would that have worked? Or lethal injection, why not that? Why the cross? Is it just that it was the most painful way of killing someone uh, at the time? Perhaps ever invented? Is it somehow the physical pain? Is it the physical pain that uh, is the payment for my sin? Because the cross is just so painful. Is that it? It can't be that. Plenty of people, thousands of people have been crucified and they're not spared from this day of God's anger. I think Revelation 14 and the drinking of the cup of wrath gives us some of the answer to that question. Uh, the physical pain you see on the cross, it's a vivid illustration that Jesus felt the full fury, the full curse of God. At that point, God, his Father, saw on him all the sins of the world, all the injustice. 
Jesus stepped into the place of the unfaithful one and he was judged and condemned in our place. What Jesus suffered physically on the cross, I think, is a reflection of what's going on spiritually, the agony, the torment. If you think about it, he had only ever known, for all of eternity, he'd only ever known the perfect love and joy of a relationship with his heavenly Father, perfect trust, perfect fidelity and faithfulness. But on the cross, Jesus is seen and judged as the unfaithful one. That would hurt, wouldn't it? To be seen forsaken and cursed by his Father, that he is loved perfectly forever and ever, with the greatest intensity for all eternity. That is a deep pain to feel that relational burden. It was the price of redemption, of my redemption, the price of justice for my grievous sins. My sins are so bad that Jesus went to the cross. Jesus was trodden on the winepress and his blood flowed. I think the physical was really just the tip of it. He endured hell, the full wrath of God. Why? Well, because he loves us intensely. So when we say that Jesus died for my sins, that's absolutely true. Of course he did. But it's not a small thing. It doesn't give us an excuse to kind of politely keep on sinning. The cross of Jesus is glorious. It's as big as the universe. It's, it changes absolutely everything. He's purchased me with his blood, which I think is the most confronting thing about this. If this is true, if Jesus purchased me with his blood, then it's true that my life is no longer my own. It belongs to him. What do we do with Revelation 14? How do we respond to this chapter? Uh, for some here today, it could be uh, that the best way to respond to this is to heed the warning and to hear the good news that Jesus has died for our sins. The only way to be safe on that day is to turn to Jesus. Ask that his death might cover your sins and be forgiven. And then begin a life that's about worshipping him. After all, that's what we're designed to do, to enjoy knowing him and loving him. It's a wonderful life, knowing and loving Jesus. If that's you this morning, if that's where you're up to, we'd love to have a discussion with you. Please let someone know today that that's what you'd like to do before you head home. For the rest of us, uh, for those who are already following Jesus, uh, we're told what to do with Revelation 14. Back in verse 12, we're told it calls for patient endurance obeying God's commandments and remaining faithful to Jesus. Endurance in the Christian life, it means to keep going. Keep going. Don't start to sort of coast along and take our eyes off Jesus. I think it means asking, am I growing as a Christian or am I coasting? Am I getting convicted of sin continually or, and, and actually changing things when I'm convicted or have I grown complacent with sin? Like kind of treating the cross of Jesus as a, as a free pass. For the record, I do that every day. But this chapter has encouraged me, don't start coasting. Don't start being okay with that. Don't be okay with a small picture of Jesus, a small cross. 
Sin is dreadful. And the cross is wonderful. And my life is Jesus's now. Which, of course, means being faithful to him with my worship. Now, worship isn't just something we do in a formal religious setting. It's, it's about what captures our hearts, what we worship, what we adore, what we love, what we give our mind and our hearts uh, attention to. We touched on this last week, but uh, most of us here won't accidentally end up worshipping a statue of Satan, will we? Probably not. But we probably will find ourselves being drawn to worship things like uh, the reputation and glory we get through our workplace. Perhaps we find ourselves worshipping what we fill our leisure time with. Perhaps those are things that give us fulfilment and satisfaction in this world. Uh, Maybe we find ourselves worshipping our children doing whatever it takes to give them uh, everything their peers have. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that uh, work or fun or children are bad. They're great. They're wonderful gifts from God. The question I'm asking, uh, really, of myself more than anyone is, are those things in the right place in my life? Maybe a good way to respond to Revelation 14, a passage as hard as this, maybe a good way to respond is to have a hard conversation with someone you trust a friend or a spouse or uh, someone in your community group, you can ask them, what, is, what in my life What in my life may need to change to help me stay faithful to Jesus? What in my life may need to change to help me stay faithful to Jesus? It would be a good conversation to have. And of course, uh, we should pray uh, that God would help us do that. So please join me in that. Heavenly Father, it is hard being confronted uh, with the reality and the severity of judgment. Uh, We ask you to give us eyes to see in this your goodness. Uh, That is a good thing that you will bring justice. Uh, And that is an even better thing, that you have given us a way to be spared from your judgment. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking the cup. Thank you for drinking deeply from it so that we don't have to. Help us to know how, how bad, how unjust our sin is. And so please help us see more clearly how wonderful you are. Please help each of us grow in our faithfulness, in our adoration, and our endurance until the day we see you. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.